You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. Hey everybody, just a quick note about this episode. This was my first on-the-go recording that I've done outside of my house. I met Michelle at the PRC to do this recording and there was a little bit of air conditioning noise and some other things happening in the office there. So if you hear any strange sounds on the recording, I apologize for the noise, but hopefully it's still enjoyable for you to listen to. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today our guest is Michelle Duhan, owner and operator of Bayou Preservation. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, thank you for having me. Sure. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Sure. I'm an architectural conservator. I've been working and living in New Orleans for about nine years now. And I work with historic buildings and artifacts and monuments in several different ways. I do design work and construction administration through one of my businesses. And then I do hands-on restoration and more of the conservation side of things with my other business. So you have a master's in science in historic preservation or master of science in historic preservation. I did a little Googling to, to look it up to see what sort of classes were offered in that particular program because I know it's a little different than, than the program here at Tulane. And it looks like it's like a little bit more hands-on and technical. Like I noticed there was it was like technology, like materials technology and some other things. And so I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about that and what that was like doing the, the program that you were in. Sure. So, yeah, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, uh, their School of Architecture for my preservation degree. And I really loved it. It is a very technical program. We do a lot of lab work. Um, so you get into the chemistry of building materials. There's a lot of field work involved with that and um, it's a two to two and a half year program and a lot of that time is also spent just in the general school of architecture taking drawing courses and construction courses we do a lot of studio work Um, so I really enjoyed it it was a pretty intense program you know you also do a master's thesis in there in that two to two and a half years but I loved it because it teaches you so many of the technical sides of preservation that you don't get to learn in a lot of other programs. Well, that sound, it sounds like a great program. It, it's definitely different than, than the one that's offered here. I wish we had a little bit more of that, you know, when, and the stuff that they, or they had at the time. Of course, I know a lot of things are different Right. Now. Every, <laughs> every program changes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you were in Texas, and what brought you to New Orleans when you were done with school? So I first came to New Orleans actually as a volunteer a couple years after Katrina, and I came with a group of preservationists and architects, and we actually worked with the Preservation Resource Center program called Rebuilding Together. We worked with them on a couple of projects. We worked with Save Our Cemeteries on a project. We also worked with homeowners in both New Orleans and in Mississippi, and so it was about eight weeks of 
volunteer work, but volunteer work that focused on historic preservation projects of all different kinds. And so that was my first experience working and living in New Orleans, and I really liked it. And so I finished my degree in Texas, and then I worked for an architecture firm in Texas for about a year and a half, two years, and just decided, you know, I really liked that place called New Orleans. Let Mm -hmm. me try to get back down there. And so kind of on a whim, decided I would move down here. Okay. And what year was that? Oh, gosh, that was 2010. 2010. Okay. And so when you first moved here, you worked for a company that started doing mostly, it was mostly historic renovations at first, and then they moved into like historic or new construction in historic infill. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So my first job here really in the preservation or construction industry in New Orleans, I was working for a general contractor who did a lot of historic renovations. And it was great experience because I did a lot of the design work. I also got involved in the construction administration and project management side of things, you know, and really got introduced to a lot of the different neighborhoods and code requirements through the Historic District Landmark Commission and the Vucre Commission. So it was a really good introduction to all things related to construction and historic renovation in New Orleans. A really good crash course and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And you helped, um, you wrote and helped them uh, with tax credits as well, correct? I did, yeah. I kind of wore, I wore a lot of hats, which was great. You know, did the tax credits, did design work, did construction, construction project management. And I highly recommend that to any preservationist who's either getting started in the industry or just looking for a different kind of career. You know, don't be afraid of construction firms mm-hmm. and general contractors. They're they're the ones actually doing all the a lot of the work out there. Mm-hmm. So I found it to be really wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah. I think there are a lot of firms here that have at least one preservationist on staff to help them because there's just so many old buildings that you kind of right. To. Yeah, you kind of need someone to help you with that stuff. So yeah, I can understand that. Okay, so after you worked for them, you started, you created your own business. You started two businesses. You have Bayou Preservation and Southkick. Why did you decide to create your own business? So Bayou Preservation, that's my hands-on restoration or architectural conservation business. And that one I actually started um, in 2011, shortly after I moved here. And that one I created really because... I didn't see a lot of hands-on conservation firms in New Orleans. Again, there were a lot of general contractors and subcontractors who were doing historic preservation just because everything here is historic and your construction is so tied to historic preservation here. But I looked around and I didn't see a lot of really technical conservators in town. Um, so I was like, you know, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to open up my own business and see where it goes. And we started doing really small, um, art conservation projects. And then that really grew into doing a lot of cemetery restoration. And that's still a good part of our business for Bayou Preservation is doing cemetery restoration. Uh, we've grown past that. We're also doing monument restoration, art public sculptures, 
and we are we're doing some small plantation buildings, outbuildings, stuff like that. It's uh, but still very technical, very hands-on restoration. The other business, which is Southkick, I started just a couple years ago when I went out on my own full time, and that is a preservation business that's focused purely on design and construction administration. So I keep the two businesses separate, um, mostly for insurance purposes. Yeah. Because they and they just they do different things. You know, one is hands on and one is hands off. So. But I like having both of them. They allow me to still wear a lot of hats Mm -hmm. and really practice and put to use all of my skill sets. Mm -hmm. So I still, I like the balance that they offer. Maybe one day I'll combine them. But for now, you know, it's, I've got two. Yeah. Um, With Bayou Preservation, you have five employees that work with you. And then for Southkick, is it mostly just you, right? Yeah, so with Southkick, it's just me. I do partner with interior designers and other architects and contractors when I need to. And then, yes, for Bayou Preservation, I have five people that work for me. Okay. So that kind you pretty much answered my next question, which was like basically what the difference is between the two companies. Can you tell us just a little bit more about, do you have maybe a project, a Southkick project that you're working on you could talk to us about? I mean, you don't have to tell us like who the owner is or like any specifics, but is there something like that you could talk about? Sure. You know, a typical Southkick project, and I've got three or four going on right now, and that's pretty standard for me at one time. But a typical project is a homeowner or client, you know, either a large residence or even a small commercial building has this building and they want to renovate it. Typically, they want to add an addition. And they're in a historic district, so they are concerned, rightly so, about the design restrictions and how to get through permitting the right way, Mm -hmm. how to design something that is both what they want and what they need, but that is also going to have an easy time getting through the HDLC and getting a permit And then sometimes they do qualify for tax credits. So I get to really stack a lot of those services in terms of design, tax credits, and then every now and then I'll help in or jump in with the construction, help them either find a general contractor or figure out how to manage their own construction. Mm -hmm. Okay. I could see how how the hands-on work that you've done in that history that you have and experience comes in really handy with something like that. This past weekend, we did a wood window uh, repair class that was put on by the NCPTT, and and one of the other people that was there is from Hattiesburg, and he is basically the preservation consultant for the city of Hattiesburg, and he doesn't have a lot of hands-on experience, and he's like, so I'm trying to do these kind of classes because I'm telling these people this is what they have to do to their buildings or their homes but I don't actually I can't actually like tell them how to do it like I'm just like you're doing it wrong and right. it needs to be redone so he's he's expanding his skill set to do more hands-on stuff so I could see how it's kind of important to have you know when you're explaining those things to people when you have the technical you know ability to explain like how they can fix it if there's a problem or something like that absolutely and you know, even outside of what I do, that's, I'm always a big proponent of design build companies, people who 
kind of straddle that line and who can offer both services because mm-hmm. they do go so hand in hand. And as for me, I think the the technical side of what I do with Bayou Preservation, it just helps to constantly keep me informed about materials mm-hmm. and material technology and vendors and subcontractors. And I find that all of that's really important information, especially when you're telling a client, you know, how much money they should spend or how much time a project should take. Mm -hmm. I find it's really helpful to know exactly how much time it does take to repoint an entire brick wall or how much their materials are really going to cost them and why, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of um, a lot of the better preservation friendly materials out there are not locally available all the time. Mm-hmm. And so there's really expensive shipping costs to consider, extra lead time to consider. And so, yeah, I just find that having both businesses and both sets of skills, they're just constantly educating one another back and forth and making me, I, I would hope, a more well-rounded preservationist. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we'll talk a little bit later about how you sort of keep up to date on your your materials and, mm-hmm. and, and technologies and stuff. But since we're sort of talking about materials now, why don't we segue into some of those more specific questions? We haven't really covered a lot of that yet in the podcast so far. It's been a lot of tax credits and and book writing and other types of projects. And since I know you have a lot of experience with this, I wanted to, to ask you. Great. So like you said, with Bayou Preservation, you do a lot of stuff with cemetery restorations and tomb restorations, which um, I don't know if people know, but it involves a lot of plaster work. The tombs here um, mostly are brick covered with plaster, um, depending on, you know, when they were built and stuff. So can you talk about basically what plaster is and what it's used for and, you know, why it's important in preservation? Sure. So in America, we, we use the word plaster to cover all manners of materials. Really, plaster is an interior building material that we have now replaced with drywall. Mm-hmm. You know, plaster was either a two or a three coat coating or process that you put up on the wall. It was always made of sand, usually a lime binder, and then either a horsehair or some kind of other aggregate to change the tensile strength and maybe even add color. Mm-hmm. And then you always add water to it. So, you know, and then as you're doing your plaster on an interior surface, you do typically, if you're doing a three-coat system, scratch coat, brown coat, finish coat. Three-coat systems were used pretty in, um, were used more often in higher-end or fancier buildings. So a lot of times you see that three-coat system subbed out for a two-coat system. Now, stucco is the word that Americans use to talk about exterior plaster. In other places of the world, namely England and Scotland, they call that render. And really, what we call stucco, we're using that word kind of incorrectly. Stucco is technically only stucco if it's done in Italy. So what we call stucco, we should be calling render. Okay. But that's a very technical piece of knowledge. I think anybody who uses the term stucco here, obviously, you know, you're talking about some exterior plaster. Historic stucco was made very similarly to historic plaster, where it's sand, a lime binder, and then an aggregate and water. It's the binder, which is lime, historically. You change that in your ratio or in your mix. You can use more or less 
to really change your mix and change how it's going to cure and how smooth it's going to be, et cetera. And lime was always the traditional material. Now, in the early 20th century, they stopped using lime for interior plaster and they used, started using gypsum. Mm-hmm. And that was really a precursor for a gyp board or a drywall product. So, you know, that's kind of a very shortened history of plaster and stucco. But the, you know, even today, if you're repairing or doing plaster on the interior, stucco render on the exterior, it's still the basic principles. You know, you're doing a two or three coat system, which is very labor intensive. Lime is very rough on your skin and hair or skin and hands and everything. You know, modern materials have stopped using lime and now they use Portland cement and everything. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, we talk about these materials. I've realized over the years after working so much with them that it's easy for me to recognize the difference between them, either when they're sitting in their powder form on the job site or they've already been put up on the wall. But that's not true for everybody. You know, it's it's harder for some people to tell the difference between those. Mm-hmm. But I think as most preservationists know, the effect that either a lime product versus a Portland cement product can have on a building, that effect is very different. Mm-hmm. And we all know how adversely or negatively Portland cement can affect historic buildings sometimes. So I've really, I've, I like knowing the differences. I, it's been interesting to really learn more about those materials. Mm-hmm. Can you, well, if in case we have anybody that's listening that maybe not a professional or doesn't have the background, can you explain what happens, the difference between using a Portland cement and the correct material on a building? Sure. So Portland cement is fine for new construction. It's made for new construction. But when you have a historic building, specifically historic buildings in New in and around New Orleans, they're made of typically a soft red brick. Mm-hmm. And so when you start putting a Portland cement based stucco or plaster on top of a really soft brick the portland cement is so much harder than the brick and the mortar that's inside the wall that it causes that brick to essentially deteriorate because it's forcing your brick to absorb stresses and cracks and movement that otherwise your stucco or your plaster would take on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's kind of like kicking the can down the road or shifting the blame a little bit. It's driving negative forces the wrong way. So yeah, but it's, if you're ever curious, I mean, a lime-based stucco or plaster, you can easily scratch with your fingernails. Mm-hmm. A Portland cement will take your fingernails off. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's a, there's a pretty easy like touch test for that. Yeah. I, I have a tendency when I go in new places, especially if, if it's an old house or building to, to poke around and run my fingers mm-hmm. along the walls to see what's, what it's right. made of on the right. inside. And I think my husband sometimes is like, why are you touching everything? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't help it. Yeah. But Por- yeah. So I think especially down here, Oh, I wanted to add, Portland cements also aren't as breathable when it comes to water vapor. They also can carry salts into the walls. There's a whole list of problems, you know, that we can go on and on about. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. With the moisture Mm -hmm. down here, it's just not a good combination. You end up with 
like a cement shell with nothing yes. on the inside of it, which doesn't doesn't do anybody any good. Um, so is if you are working on a home that already has plaster inside of it, you would recommend continuing, to, like if it needed repairs, you would mm-hmm. recommend going ahead and repairing it if it's in good enough shape to be repaired. Yeah, so if it's in good enough shape, we try to keep it. Here's the thing. Plaster is so labor-intensive, and it's, for that reason, very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. And there are not that many plasterers left, really, who can do whole-wall flat plaster, especially with a lime, and really make it look right. Mm -hmm. So if you're deciding to keep and repair plaster, you just have to know what you're getting into. It's, you know, major time, major expense. However, you know, if you ever get uh, moisture issues or even some mold or mildew issues inside your house, the great thing about plaster is you can just wipe it clean. Mm -hmm. You know, your plaster is basically a rock sitting up there on your wall. It's limestone that has recalcified into a rock. Mm So it's a great building material. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of the knowledge about it. So it's become this kind of rare and prestigious craft that is also very expensive. Mm -hmm. So there's been really only a few times where in a residential project where we've been able to justify repairing plaster. Mm -hmm in multiple locations you know a lot of times we can save it on one wall here one wall there maybe just at the ceiling but um you know you got to think too if you're adding electrical and plumbing and mechanical it's right that's hard to do with plaster so it's it's definitely a commitment mm-hmm. yeah I think sometimes if you if you go in and you see a house where all the electrical is in the baseboard yeah that's usually uh-huh. that's usually the case the last couple of places I've lived in the place we, we're in now and the place I lived in Mid-City had still had the original plaster walls. And yep. there's, there's not a lot of things cut into them or in, in either one of those places. And we actually had some, we had a roof leak last year where our landlords had some people come out and repair the plaster ceiling in the living room. Oh, good. So, I mean, it was, I was glad that they did it and they, they're very cautious about, you know, taking care of, you Great. know, keeping it. And they were like, don't poke holes in the walls. Make sure you use the picture rails yeah, and, yeah. you know, all that good stuff. So we're, we're trying to keep it nice, but I, I wouldn't want to, you know, I would want to keep it yeah. as, as much as possible. And there really is a beauty to it. Mm-hmm. It just, it's such a, a beautiful kind of rich looking material. Can you tell us maybe some of the places that you can get the lime materials that you need? I know there's a place in the Northeast, right, that you can order stuff from. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, you know, there used to be a lot of places around the U.S. where you could get traditional lime, traditional building materials, especially different kinds of lime, because there are a lot of different kinds of lime. You know, there's a hydrated lime, there's hydraulic lime, they come in different strengths. The way you use them is differently. You have to know how they cure Um, how to mix them properly. So there's really not a one-size-fits-all lime out there. Mm -hmm. So I would just caution people, you know, if you're asking a mason or a plasterer to use lime who hasn't, who's not used to it, you might not get the best results. It's, um, it really just isn't a one-size-fits-all approach kind of thing. But that being said, there used to be a company called Virginia Lime Works that 
sold a lot of those traditional building materials. We have a local masonry supply shop called Masonry Products in Mid-City. Okay. They bought a lot of their old stock from, oh, I'm sorry, from uh, Virginia Lime Works. I think they are running very low oh. on those materials now because I've, I've had trouble getting any of that from the local shop. But locally available, are, so yeah, masonry products, they do carry a hydraulic lime, but it's a German one. Typically the best or the better hydraulic limes are from France. And there is a place, it's the old um, Pennsylvania Limeworks shop. It's now called Limeworks U.S., and you can find them online, mm-hmm. and they're great, and they offer everything. It's a little pricey because you do have to pay a pretty substantial shipping cost for everything. Yeah, but I, I mean, I can't recommend them highly enough. Their products are great. Their technical resources are very good. So, you know, that's always a really good option. It just when you're looking for local suppliers, it gets a little harder. Yeah, and correct me if if I'm wrong here, but I, I'm. I'm, I'm trying to remember if you keep it like if you had some mix already some plaster that you had been using for a project if you keep that you can can you not keep it with like a little water on top and then seal it up and it pretty much keeps for a long time that way doesn't it it if it's a hydrated lime mm-hmm. or a non-hydraulic lime it will okay um and it really like lime putty which is what you use to mix a lot of your plasters that will keep for forever as long as you keep it in a closed container and like you said keep some water on top of it then yes that's great um your hydraulic limes no they'll obviously set in water that's Mm -hmm. what they're designed to do that's both their strength and their downfall Mm -hmm. because it's great to use a hydraulic lime here in new orleans where it's such a high humidity level and it rains a lot because they'll set in those really high humid environments Mm -hmm. but you can't save them for you know multiple days and weeks like that so yeah again you just you kind of have to know what kind of lime you're using and what the application is going to be okay okay that makes sense yeah because I know a lot of people when they are looking for those kind of investments that they kind of want to know if it's something they can stretch or if it's going to be like a one-time use yeah okay yeah and a regular hydrated lime you can absolutely buy locally from masonry products yeah, that's that's a very common building material, even in um, like the HDLC and the VCC prescribed mortar mixes that has a lot of hydrated lime in it. So that's the easier version of lime to find. Mm-hmm. It's when you start getting into the hydraulic limes and the different strengths and pozzolans and additives, that's where you're going to have to really probably go online. Okay. This this will kind of go with my next question, I think. I, I want to propose like a hypothetical job or a case study. If um, you have a client that comes to you and they have a family tomb here in one of the cemeteries, what is your process? What's the process that you use to determine what type of work needs to be done for a project like that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I first started, I would always give an estimate or a bid with a scope of work. And it was, you know, this is my approach. This is what has to happen. This is what's best for the tomb. Take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. And I've since really changed that approach because I realize, you know, people 
T- tomb restoration is expensive. It's labor intensive, and we are using the correct kind of materials, so our materials are a little bit pricier. And I realize that not everybody out there wants to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars for a tomb mm-hmm. where dead people are. Yeah. So <laughs> I've since kind of changed my approach, and I always, I usually now offer two options to my clients when I'm looking at a tomb restoration. I tell them, look, here's what the basics that need to happen to your tomb. You know, and usually that means it needs to be cleaned. It needs to have the ferns and higher plants removed from it so that those roots don't continue to do damage. You know, usually those marble closure tablets need a little help, either cleaning, consolidation, some fillers, etc. A lot of them are covered in latex paint. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that does damage. And then we get into paint stripping, et cetera. You know, so I try to offer clients, you know, here are the basics that need to be done just to make sure your tomb really doesn't fall apart in Mm -hmm. the next decade. And then I offer them an option B or option two. And I say, if you want to fully restore this tomb and, you know, do everything top to bottom and do it the right way and replaster and put five coats of a beautiful lime wash on. Let's do that. You know, and here's the cost for that. And a lot of times I find people kind of go for something in the middle, mm-hmm. honestly, based on budget and time and what they need. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, the point of all that, the longer I've been in business, I realize you got to give people some options mm-hmm. and you have to work with their budgets. Yeah. You know, that applies to their, to your clients, whether you're dealing with their house or their tomb. So, Mm -hmm. okay. So you would, you would basically give it a once over and kind Mm -hmm. of, kind of say, this is the basic things that you need to do to keep it from falling down, um, and, and just getting worse. And then from there you would decide, you know, this is the type of materials and that sorts of things. And then you would give them an outline of, of what they need to do. Okay. That makes sense. So you talked earlier about some of your other types of projects that you do besides tomb restorations. Um, You said you do some monuments, some public art. Can you talk, first, can we talk about other cemetery work? Because I know that you do stuff with actual stones besides just the the enclosures that we have here. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So we do a lot of stonework here, whether it is on a a tomb. Um, We also do, like you said, monuments and sculptures. Those are often made of stone. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, Louisiana doesn't have natural stone, especially down here. There's Mm no quarry outside of New Orleans where you can get your limestone and your marble and all that. So stone is a more rare building material here. But you find a lot of it in cemeteries. Um, You know, you find the marble for the closure tablets. You can find granite blocks as an actual building or structural material. And, you know, occasionally you see some, you know, some pink granites and some different types of marble. And you see a lot of slate out in cemeteries as well. Yeah. So that's fun. You know, that is a chance for us to work with stone because... Otherwise, you don't see a lot of it out there. So, and um, in Texas, there was we I worked with stone all the time. You know, they had different kinds of limestone and sandstone, et cetera, et cetera. So, I really do like getting the chance to work with stone here, and for us, that means usually cleaning it properly. Mm-hmm. 
consolidating it where we need to and making sure it has the right mortar. You know, if it's stacked and has like a mortar joint, that's, that's usually what we do. And it is, it's fun. So I know we, uh, one of the first times that you and I met was out at the Chalmette Cemetery and we were resetting the stones You're right. that were out there. So that's, that's another thing that has to be done beyond just making sure that everything is in good shape. You know, things here sink. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I think that's a problem, not just here. I think that happens in a lot of places and you do have to go out and sort of levelize things. You may have to dig out a hole and mm-hmm. fill it in with some sand and make sure everything's even. And especially in, in the, the sort of veterans and military cemeteries like that, everything right. is, everything's the same height and this, you know, the rows are very even and organized, you know, whereas like some of the, the smaller, you know, family cemeteries aren't quite as right, right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, we we did. We worked in uh, the Chalmette National Cemetery. Beautiful, beautiful place. Resetting headstones, and I think I spoke about this with you out there. You know, those headstones, like the closure tablets in the local cemeteries, are made of white marble, mm-hmm. which is really not a great material to use yeah. in that application. Um, it gets dirty easily. It's very porous. It's basically a sponge for all kinds of stains and salts and biological growth. When it's used as a tablet, it can bow, mm-hmm. it can bow in, it can bow out, it cracks, you know, there's kind of this laundry list of issues. The reason we use it though, is that it's nice and soft, which means it's easy to carve and inscribe. And when it is clean, it looks so pretty. Yeah. So yeah, the white, the white is pretty. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. I think of the word salting. Is that the right term for what the the white marble does in when it sort of gets kind of soft and? You're close. You're in the the right realm. It's actually called sugaring. Sugaring. So okay, <laughs> that was close. You had the close. the food analogy there. Um, yeah, that's called sugaring, and typically the sugaring happens as the pH level of the marble is changing, mm-hmm. um, essentially becomes weak. And you can change the pH on marble, you know, simply by using the wrong kind of cleaners on it. Bleach is a great one mm-hmm. that'll change the pH of it. Certain kinds of biological growth will do that if they're sitting on there for too long. So, yeah, I mean, marble is just a very delicate a delicate flower yeah. in terms of, you know, as far as rocks go anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I know, I know you see that a lot and with the, with the face plates on the tombs and they, they get this weird texture and it's, mm-hmm. and then all the words disappear. I know, and, I know. It's, it's sad. Yeah. It's kind of sad. And that, that's typically when we use our consolidants, you know, times change. When I was in school, consolidating and using chemical consolidants was, kind of eh, not iffy but it was it was always a last resort thing for conservators because Mm -hmm. it is an irreversible process Mm -hmm. but I find that we do it quite a bit down here because otherwise that sugaring like you said you're just going to lose all of that historical information and so it's like well here's let's go let's save what we've got left kind of approach yeah Yeah. and sometimes that's the only thing you can do right yeah exactly in my interview with uh, Leah Solomon, uh, she was talking about that documentation in a documentation process, like for buildings. And she was like, sometimes all you can do if it, people are bound and determined to tear it down or get rid of it, 
the best thing you can do is just make sure it's documented. Right. Yeah. And sometimes just having the record is, is the best, the, o- right. or the best or the only thing you can do. So mm-hmm. absolutely. And especially with the cemeteries here, there's, there's so much in them and there's so much history and, and it kind of gets lost to me anyway, I feel like people kind of forget that there are other cemeteries besides the really big sort of like touristy draws. Absolutely. And that there's in all these important people and this important history that um, that's in the, the ones like, you know, like Lafayette number two or St. Louis number three that people don't go to like a ton and they right. just go and they see the few big ones and maybe go out to Metairie Cemetery, but maybe they don't go across the street to, to, to Green, Greenwood, Greenwood yeah. or, you know, so you don't always see that. Speaking of Metairie Cemetery, I just, I just, you could get lost in there oh, for days. it's beautiful. It's, it's got so much great stuff in it. The Egyptian um, yep. pyramid one mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff in there and that's a really good one for anybody that's listening. That's that's worth the drive out of out of the right. city. Like you know, it's like a, two All the way miles away, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it is one of those ones that's like you know, it's not on the path of the Garden District or the French Quarter, so it's kind of out of the way a little bit. Um, yep, absolutely. As far as like monuments, so you do. I I, I noticed on your Instagram you did some, or you were retouching the. I guess painting the letters back in or something like that. Yeah. So it's called in painting and we do that quite a bit on monuments and public art. You always see those inscriptions, you know, on you know, the pieces of stone everywhere and over time that paint fades and so we go back in and we fill it back in with paint, which is, you know, you have to be very slow and careful with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we did. We worked on a couple of rather large sculptures downtown in Waldenburg Park recently. Both of them are white marble. And, um, you know, I think the in-painting is what clearly tourists and visitors, that's that's what they see as the biggest change because it, you go, it goes from being illegible to suddenly, oh, my gosh, these letters are as clear as day, and I can really see the the change in the before and after and that's something that takes us a long time because it is just a slow process, but it's actually one of the less technical things that we do and have done on those monuments. You know, we're always looking at the cracks that mm-hmm. are happening and we're having to keep an eye on them and we're, um, you know, using and mixing different stone fillers and using consolidants again and really monitoring moisture le- levels and stuff like that. So the in-painting, again, just provides a really fun before and after, but... There's a lot of other technical stuff going on back there. Mm-hmm. And so for projects like that, is that generally the city that contacts you? Or I, mean, I don't know who really owns those types of monuments. Yeah, it, it kind of depends. It's monument to monument. In the case for the two in Waldenburg Park, those were both contracted through Audubon. Okay. But if, I, if my memory uh, serves me correctly... One or both of them were owned or partially owned or managed by the city. You know, all these public spaces, I'm starting to realize, have agreements between maybe the city as an owner and then a different institution as the caretaker or Mm -hmm. vice versa. And so some of that I'm just saying, well, okay, I don't need to know all the ins and outs. This is I I know what I need to do and, you know, here's how much and let's go. Mm -hmm. So... 
I never really thought about like who would handle right yeah you know, taking care of that kind of stuff you mm-hmm. just like you said you just kind of walk by it one day and all of a sudden it's pretty and nice again and exactly like, somebody did that work but you don't think about who who works on it mm-hmm. it's the same with the cemeteries too I guess yeah but of course down here that would depend on if it's if it's a city cemetery or if it's one of the catholic cemeteries absolutely that, that makes a difference too it does and, yeah um makes a big difference in permitting and mm-hmm. access all, all kinds of things yeah i i think the catholic city i mean the catholic cemeteries are a little i don't know sometimes i see some of the stuff that has happened and i'm like oh who did that i don't know what's <laughs> going on with this but the 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 stone repair it just reminded me of my family's from from Georgia, and I was in North Georgia some years ago, and there was a monument, and I I don't even remember what it was, some sort of Confederate something or other, I'm sure, and somebody had done a repair to this stone, and it was just it it, it looked like silly putty was like wedged yeah. into the cracks of it, and it wasn't I don't I don't know what they used or you know but yeah. it, and they, there was no no you know, the cracks cut up through the words and stuff and there was no effort to like continue the lettering or it was yeah. just smooshed in there. And it kind of makes me sad when I see that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I typically, or I try to tell people when it comes to monument and art restoration, it's usually not a DIY kind of yeah. project. <laughs> um, again, like it, there's more technical stuff going on there than you might realize. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just think of that, that painting of Jesus that, right. you know, that, that woman touched up. Um, and it's easy to do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to think like, Oh, I'm just going to run to home Depot or Ace Hardware, get whatever they have. And that'll help. I can't tell you a lot of what we do as conservators is correcting previous people's, um, repairs, Mm -hmm. you know, we are chipping away a lot of old epoxy and yeah. Portland cement and just stuff that shouldn't be on there. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of what we have to do. Yeah. And silicone is nobody's friend. Yeah. No. <laughs> stay away from the silicone. Yeah. Stay away from the caulk and the, and the cement. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the materials information. How do you stay up to date on that type of, of stuff? Are you like in some organizations like the national trade network for example or do you get publications how do you keep you know just kind of keep on track with that kind of stuff yeah so you know it's funny whenever i have people who i meet or who interview with me they uh, this, the same kind of question comes up and i always tell them look your degree in historic preservation does not and it's not designed to give you the answer to everything. Mm-hmm. What it does, it gives you the resources to know how to find answers right. to anything. So with that, I mean, I'm a member of APT and AIC, Association for Preservation Technology and American Institute for Conservation. Uh, I get both of their journals. They're both wonderful. They're very technical, mm-hmm. which I, I like. And I keep them and I save them because I always have projects come up and I think, I remember there was this one article in this one journal five years ago that Mm -hmm. talked about something like this. And they're great resources. Other than that, I stay in really close contact 
with my vendors and the people I buy my materials from. Mm-hmm. I'm in constant communication with them every time I buy from them. I want to hear their updates. I want to know how the materials are being stored, especially because a lot of the stuff comes through the Northeast and lime and other materials are susceptible to freezing and Mm -hmm. they've got to be shipped during the right time of year and handled and stored properly. So I'm just constantly trying to read up and educate myself, but then also just talking to the people who are around the materials all the time like I am. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and I, I'm not a conservator that believes in, like, holding back my knowledge, you right. know, or trade secrets. I, I more want to share everything with the world. I wish I had more more time and energy to write or publish things, but maybe one day. Yeah. Well, that that's something that's come up in, in previous episodes. You know, don't be afraid to ask someone if you don't know mm-hmm. or you need advice ask a friend, ask a professional, maybe they know somebody that knows somebody that can absolutely give you advice or point you in the right direction. That that's like one of the biggest things I think in this field is that, like you said, nobody wants to hoard their knowledge. Everybody wants to share it. And and that's been my experience with basically all the preservationists that, that I've met so far. People want to tell you because they want everything to be nice too. So they're not going to keep you from making things nice again. So So what do you enjoy the most about what you do? Oh, let's see. What do I enjoy the most about what I do? I love that because I have these two businesses that are both in preservation but do or focus on different sides of it, that if it's a beautiful day outside, I can get my tools and I'll go work on a project outside. Mm -hmm. And then if it's raining and 100 degrees – I can kind of hole up in my office with my computer and work on drawings. Or if I am feeling super chatty one day, I can, you know, do check-ins with my clients and call my vendors and talk to all my subcontractors. And I can kind of, you know, ride those waves and be flexible, Mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. You know, with every positive, there's, you know, always kind of – not a negative, but a harder side to things, you know, like any person who owns a business or self-employed, it can be feast or famine. And, you know, you're the one ultimately responsible for everything. And you've got other people's paychecks to cover, Right. you know, there's always, there's those things to consider, but I, I honestly really love what I do. And I find that it makes for great dinner party and cocktail conversation. Yeah. <laughs> People are always interested when you when you say, oh, I'm a preservationist. And then they're like, oh, really? Yeah. And they get very excited. And especially down here, you know, the people yeah. are just super interested in it. And then they always want to show you things. They're like, right. come check out this original feature in my house. Or I've got this stuff still in tile in my bathroom yeah. or like, whatever. Great. Show Which, it. Show yeah, me. <laughs> I know. That's exactly what I do too. And I think some people think I'm weird sometimes because we'll go places nah. and they're like, what do you want to eat? And I'm like, what? T- tin ceiling? What? Yeah. Oh, you mean food. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I totally do that. I, I pay attention more to the spaces than the other things sometimes that's happening in the space. Yeah. Um, I, I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of answered, you know, the difficult part, like you yeah. said. Do you have any preservation pet peeves? Hmm. Preservation pet peeves. I would say when I 
hear, not even when I hear it, but when I read preservation articles and publications where preservationists are getting terms wrong, Uh, architectural elements, getting those kind of terms wrong, getting their materials mixed up, you know, and I think that does come from just a general lack of technical knowledge, like you touched on earlier. I think there are, you know, whether or not you're, you're getting this knowledge in school, there's not a whole lot of technical-based preservation jobs out there. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the jobs are in advocacy and government yeah. and planning and just different realms. But, um, you know, I wish there was like a, uh, <laughs> I don't know, some kind of a preservation 101 for different material terms, architectural terms, just so we're all using the same language and using it correctly. I know that's a very silly pet peeve, but no, th- th- there I, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. There, there are times when I see, you know, some of the people I follow on Instagram or hashtags or something, and it'll be a picture of a building, and they'll be like, oh, this is, you know, Second Empire. And I'm like, no, it's no, not, not yeah. really Second <laughs> Empire. Or what, one of my things is, is, and I have this discussion with a lot of people, the use of the term Victorian yeah. to describe a style, you know, like right. a style. And it's like, it's really a period. Absolutely. And there are styles within that period. Like m- something being modern. Yeah. There's, yeah. yeah. And, so, you know, there you have to kind of like, I guess that's fine if you're, you know, just being sort of general. But there are, you know, that big house with the turret is probably a Queen Anne or right. something similar. Mm-hmm. You know, try, try to make it a little bit more specific than just saying, it's Victorian. Well, that that's a span of a lot of years. Right. And a lot of different building styles came out at that time. Absolutely. So that's yeah. one of the ones that, that gets me a lot. The mm-hmm. same kind of with the, with the terms and the technology, for sure. Yeah. Do you have any advice for someone looking to get into preservation? Advice for someone looking to get into preservation... I mean, I I guess I'm biased based on my own experience, but I've had good luck and I've enjoyed getting a wide range of experiences in preservation. I you know, I've worked for an architecture firm, I've worked for a general contractor, I've worked as an architectural conservator through my own business, and I've liked that. I've like again, I spoke about earlier, I found that each experience has helped the next and you just build upon your own knowledge constantly. So, you know, and I talk to preservationists all the time and they say, well, I don't have a skill or, well, I don't know how to draw or I don't know how to do this. So I feel like I'm always going to be stuck working in X, Y, Z. And I say, forget that. You know, you are a smart person. You can go learn a new skill. Go get out there. Go apply for a different kind of job in preservation. Don't be afraid to learn and kind of you know, stretch your skill set or grow your skill set a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the degree and the smarts to learn all, to learn whatever you need to learn. Mm-hmm. So kind of, ex- I guess, expand your horizons. Don't be afraid to work in different environments would be my advice. Yeah. You know, don't pigeonhole yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Or don't, don't be afraid to take like the historic wood restoration exactly. class, right that's or, a great one you know anything that comes up like that there's the you know here are the ncptt if you want to do hands-on technical stuff they do all kinds of things but right. there's also like the preservation trades network has all yes. kinds of things and there's there's always conferences and 
even online now they're they're doing like digital conferencing if you can't make it to yeah. wherever it is and right now i'm taking a a grant writing class oh fabulous because i don't really we didn't really do that when i was in school and i don't have that skill right yeah and that's a great one yeah and it's something i really feel like i need to add to my repertoire of things and so i found the american Grant Writers Association, I think, or it's either okay. the Grant Writers Association of America. I always think of dodgeball, you know, <laughs> the American Dodgeball Association of America. Like I want to stick it at the <laughs> end of both parts of it, but I know that's not right. But they have online courses and you can get a certificate and I'm, I'm doing that you yeah. know, for myself right now because that is something that I'm lacking that I'm, but I know that I can add to, mm-hmm. you know, my, my skill set. So I would say, too, like if you're in school or just, you know, recently graduated or hell, if you're just looking for a job or even a part time job, you know, don't be afraid to maybe check with like a local millwork shop or a carpenter or, you know, someone even just in construction. Like Mm -hmm. I just that's such good experience. And don't be afraid to, you know, do a skill where you're working with your hands. Um, I've also hired a lot of artists or people who have training and art Mm -hmm. you know ceramics and painting and I found that anybody who knows how to work with their hands they're so quick to pick up new skills Mm -hmm. so you know maybe go take a pottery class and just all of that you're going to constantly be building on and it all helps shape your overall skill set as a preservationist Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah that's some good advice so I think that's just about it for today how can our listeners get in touch with they touch with you? What's your social media? Okay. So I have two websites, Bayou Preservation and Southkick.com. So check out either one of them. I have contact information on both of them. Yeah. I have Facebook pages and Instagram accounts. So I, I'm pretty easy to find online. And yeah, I welcome all comments and questions and inquiries. Yeah, I would recommend the, definitely the Instagram account because I like seeing the projects that, that Bite yeah. Preservation works on. It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I think that's it for today. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much, Taylor. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guest's information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.